Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, we're going to talk about sex, as promised long ago. We're also going to have a quick update on COVID-19 because I have found an expert, excellent resource for you guys. And uh, we'll also talk about a few other things relating to van life in difficult times. But hey, what are we here for? Probably the sex. So let's get to that. To welcome, I hope everyone is doing well out there in these very unusual times. Folks, it's it's rough out there for someone in a van. Um, everything is closing. Um, for folks who are out in the rural parts of the states, uh, you may find that your campgrounds are closing, all the state parks are closing, not all of them, but you don't know if they're open or not. It's changing day by day. Stores are closing. Are there strange hours? Gyms are closing, so it's tough to get a shower. It's just very, very uncertain out there. And while we are independent folks and tend to be able to weather storms like this better than many, it's tricky. Um, I had originally planned to make an entire podcast about all these changes and stuff and look for resources, but someone has done something better. And I'm just going to tell you about that. Um, a woman by the name, I believe it's a woman. I actually don't know. Uh, Sasha Nakar, uh, has created a website at vanlifers.co. So that's vanlifers, as it sounds, dot C-O, no M. If you go to that website and click on the upper left, you'll see a coronavirus link. She or he has put together an amazing resource of everything you could want to know. And she's jumping, I'm going to assume it's a she, and she's jumping on it and it's up to date. And every time something changes, she goes in and changes it. For example, yesterday, the Canadian border closed and she added that right away. So great resource talks about places that you can go for help. And it even has a forum where you can say, Hey, I've got this. I can help people with this. Or, Hey, I've got three places to park on my farm. Come on over. Or boy, I'm really in need of a water pump. I can't find one anywhere. You know, that kind of stuff. So again, definitely go there and check it out. Vanlifers.co. And that's it. That's all I'm going to talk about the virus. I want these episodes to be evergreen, which means you can listen to them at any time in history. And I imagine a year from now, COVID-19 is going to be kind of of the past, (laughs) hopefully. So um, I don't want to dominate these episodes with it. Besides, it's not what we're here to talk about, is it? Okay, so, you know, it's kind of a tease when anyone makes a podcast and they have the sex episode. It doesn't even matter what the topic is. It can be sex in history or sex in sports or sex among the garden or whatever. It's a joke. It's, it's like we have run out of things to talk about. So now we're going to talk about sex. That isn't actually what happened in this case. When I was creating this podcast many months ago, um, this came up and I promised to do it. So this is my, me keeping my promise to talk about sex in a van. First off. Yes, you can have sex in a van. If, if anyone didn't know that, you know now. Because people are living in their van, vans, and guess what? People have sex, and they have sex where they live. Doesn't matter where they live. They're probably having sex. So yes, people are having sex in their vans. That's it. That's all there is to talk about. No, actually, there is a little bit more to talk about, because sex in vans does run into some issues that maybe you wouldn't run into in a house or on a beach or in the woods or in prison or wherever else you might be um, taking care of your necessities. Back in the 70s, when someone had a van, it was often referred to as a shaggin' wagon, and that wasn't only because it had shag carpet in it. 
and there were some places where there were problems uh, because depending on your locale, being in a van can be seen as being in public and having sex in a van can be seen as lewd activity. So you probably don't want folks to know what you're up to in there. And there's other things you do in there that you don't want folks to know you're doing either. We're, we're very interested in privacy from the outside world. But sexual activity tends to involve motion. Doesn't always. Sometimes it involves rather vigorous motion. And you're in a vehicle that's on a suspension. And when there's vigorous motion in a vehicle on a suspension, it rocks giving us the time-honored expression, if the vans are rockin', don't come a-knockin'. But you don't actually want it to rock. I mean, there are rhythmic advantages to the rocking that might be interesting, but not for letting the world kind of mind its own business, the rocking is a bad thing. There's one very simple thing you can do to significantly reduce the rocking, and that is to put on your emergency brake. What the emergency brake does in most cars is that it pulls a cable in the back and locks the back brakes. That's usually how it works. Sometimes it locks the transmission. It, it depends on what you've got. But in most vans, it locks the back brakes. This prevents a significant amount of shaking from front to back in the van. And depending on how you have your bed or bench or sex chair or whatever you're using in there, that will significantly reduce the amount of motion visible from the outside from the front to back direction. The side to side direction, if you've got a horizontal bed, that's going to be much more difficult because then there are springs above every wheel or McPherson struts or coils or whatever your vehicle has. They're designed to kind of sway like that. I mean, they're doing their job. So if you're kind of in a rhythm, the van's going to show that from the outside. And if you are extremely rhythmic, you're going to increase those motions with every, shall we say, thrust. That is a little trickier to solve, but it is solvable. Um, one simple way to solve it, and it may not be the most spontaneous thing in the world, is you can take your jack out and you can put your jack on the axle and just jack it up a little bit. Not very much, just a little bit. And that will keep a little bit of the motion going. I, ideally, you would want two or four, honestly. But we figure you're in a hurry to do something else. So a jack can help. All right. So let's say you're going to park for a while. And uh, you're going to go about your normal daily activities. You can actually get blocks of wood that you can jack up your van, put the block of wood in, and then let the van body come down and sit on the wood. So the wood's actually between the axle and the van and that will basically defeat the springs, and the vehicle won't um, shake. If you were to drive like that, you would be hating life, <laughs> because you would have just disabled the entire suspension system. It's, it's pretty simple. You have to be a little bit careful. I'd recommend you, like, Google how to do that. Um, but, yeah, uh, that would do it. And it also wouldn't... I mean, the other obvious way to do it is to get levelers or stabilizers like RVs have. But those have little feet that come down and touch the ground, and that's frowned upon in parking lots and such. Because, hey, you are in a van, you might be in a parking lot. You might be having the time of your life in a Walmart parking lot at noon, for example, and um, you might not want to put down the levelers. So there's that aspect. There's another aspect, and I've actually heard other van life people report this, is that stuff in the van 
tends to move with you. Um, be careful that you're not going to get kitchen cutlery and pots and pans and pictures and surfboards and stuff raining down on you in your moment of passion. Most people have a driving mode and a parked mode where they have cabinets open and cabinets secured when they're driving, you know, and they're, and they're open when they're not driving, that kind of a thing. Um, you want to batten down the hatches, so to speak, um, because your motion that you create could be similar to the motion of the vehicle driving, and all that stuff is going to fall out, and possibly on you. Um, there could be knives hopping off the block into the bed. Probably not a great scene, but hey, you do you. There's also the consideration of you've just had your one to 90 minutes or more of excitement, and now what? It's You're going to thank yourself if you have a plan for what to do afterwards. Now, a lot of people like to visit a bathroom immediately after sex, especially women who can seriously reduce their risk of UTIs by visiting the bathroom immediately after sex. Well, you're in a van, and hey, you may have a porta potty in there, but you don't have a lot of privacy. So, I am not giving you any advice on that topic. Just think about what are you going to do in this case. And there's uh, perhaps a little bit of cleanup to deal with, or maybe more, depending on what you're into. Think about how you're going to deal with that, too. It's not like you can just ball up the sheets and throw them in the washing machine. Unless you happen to have parked in front of a laundromat, which, hey, that might not be such a bad idea. As far as people creeping on you, uh, I'm going to reveal a little bit here. Um, I have been caught um, in flagrante delicto in a vehicle. It has happened to me. And um, what happened was folks, it was at night, and folks drove up and shined their light through the window, their headlights, and just kind of watched for a little bit. And so what we did was we stopped and looked back at them. And then they went away, probably laughing their butts off. The truth is, it's, it's kind of just not that big of a deal. It's funny for them. They've got a story to tell. You know, I suppose these days you might be worried people are taking video or whatever, but if the worst happens, it isn't worth getting too upset about it. I mean, the wor actually, the worst happening would be the cops called and they made a big deal out of it, but you shouldn't be parking in places where that's a possibility anyway. So, can people have sex in vans? Yes. In fact, they do. They do with great regularity. It is a normal part of van life. But like with everything in van life, you have to adjust just a little bit in order to get things to work uh, smoothly. Uh, efficiently, um, delicately, ah, you know, it just doesn't matter. You're going to do it and it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Just get on with it. But as for finding partners to engage in these activities with, yeah, you're on your own for that. Um, you're going to pick somebody up at a bar and say, Hey, do you want to come back to my van? That's a whole new world of psychology and invasion of space. And I'm beyond that all. But uh, there are other podcasts that talk about this. I don't have any experience in that area, so I'm not going to be much use. Just remember, though, you are bringing somebody into your space, and uh, it is extremely intimate, and you're being very vulnerable. So, so be very, very careful. Please be careful. 
Okay, a little bit of tech talk, and I am not going to talk about sex tech talk. You're on your own for that, too. Although there is 12 volts in the van, and that's quite a bit of power. Somebody wrote to me, and uh, I believe her name is Kara, and asked me about Windows. Now, she happens to have the same kind of van I do, which is a Nissan NV200, and there are factory options for Windows in this van. Uh, and in fact, there's two different kinds. There's the just just a window kind that kind of takes up the whole side, and then there's a window with a little slider that's usually used in the taxi edition of the NV200. And I imagine she probably is thinking, how can I get one of these windows in my van? Well, here's the story with windows and vans. First, decide that you want to have a window. I mean, think about it more carefully than just, I'd like to be able to see outside. Because you've got a few problems with windows. First problem is you are eliminating much of the stealth capacity of your van by putting in a window. Windows say RV. That's just what they do. And that's okay. Just know that that's what they do. Second thing is... Windows can leak. You are creating a vulnerability in your van, a place for water to get in. Third thing, windows reduce security. People think of windows as ways to get into a van. Now, the truth is, anybody with a drill and a jigsaw can literally cut a hole in the side of your van and get in. I don't know why people don't think of that. I'm kind of happy. Yes, it makes a lot of noise, but windows are more of an invitation. All right, you've got all those things. But there's also a lot of benefits. Like, for example, you get to see outside, which is something I have many times wanted to do. And you can maybe open the window and let some air in. So that's a great thing, too. And it lets in light, which, uh, you know, just well, you won't have to use your lights during the day. Those are all good things. Uh, the other thing that I didn't add to the first part is that you also will lose more heat out of windows or get more heat coming in. So they require a special insulation, which is not a big deal. You just cover them with Reflectix and you're fine. But how do you add the window to your van? Do you have to go to the Nissan dealer, in my case, and say, hey, I want a factory window? No, 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 no. The truth is about adding a window to the van, it's as simple as you cut a hole in the van and then you glue the window on. Yes, there's a lot of trimming and such, but that's basically all it is, even with the OEM windows. You just have to have the courage to cut a hole. I've noticed this thing, which is weird. Regionally, people do different things for windows. For example, in my area for vans, what I see is people tend to buy this kind of oblong window with a slider at the bottom that has a screen that lets air in. So it's like an RV window or for a conversion van. Those are fine. They're easy to install. They come with uh, molding for both sides. But when I went to New England, I noticed a lot of portholes. Lots of vans with portholes. Now, I, I actually like the porthole look, um, and they're inexpensive. They cost about 75 bucks. They don't have uh, a way to open. No, oh, they're about the size of a dinner plate or, or smaller even. And they're usually very heavily tinted. So while that round shape kind of gives away that you're camping in your van... It's also a nice shape. It lets you stick your face in there and look out, and yet it's really hard for people to look in. So that's an option you have, too. Again, if you were going to install this, all you would do is cut a hole in the side of the van. I'll give you the exact process for installing the porthole window, if you're at all scared of it. You get your porthole window, and it comes with trim. And that trim will have uh, it's usually aluminum trim or plastic trim. You put it up against the side of your van, take a Sharpie and trace the inside of it. That will give you your circle that you're going to cut. Then you take a drill 
and you drill holes every few inches all the way around. Yes, you're drilling a hole right through the side of your van. You have to do that. It's the only way to have a window. It's scary the first time, the second time's not so scary, and after that you just don't care. And then you take a jigsaw and you cut that hole out. And if you've done it correctly, and you're going to measure and stuff and make sure you're using the right template, your window will pop in, you'll have some butyl tape, B-U-T-Y-L, butyl tape is the best thing for sealing windows. It's kind of like a putty, it never hardens, and it squishes into cracks and everything. It's really good stuff. Uh, you're going to line the window with that, push the window into the hole, put the two pieces of trim together, or one piece, however it is, put in the screws, and you're done. You can install a window in 10 minutes. It's not going to leak, it's going to be fine. Don't be afraid of installing windows and cutting holes in your vehicle. Let's say that it went wrong. Oh no, I cut the hole too big, which is the worst thing you can do. If you cut the hole too small, you can always cut it bigger. Well, you've got a few options if you cut the hole too big. You can get a bigger window, that's one option. Or you can patch the hole. Now, if you have a brand new van, this is not as appealing an option, but let's, it, my van, which is older, I've got 140,000 miles on it, it's six years old. If I screwed up cutting a hole in the side of the van, I would just get a piece of metal and cover the hole with it, like maybe a piece of diamond plate or something like that. And maybe I would paint it or something, I don't know. But I would simply mount it over that hole and I would be fine with that. And then I would put a window in it. There is a solution. You can fix it. But really, if you're making the template, it's pretty hard to cut the hole the wrong size. And this goes for putting in air conditioners and max air fans in the roof too. So, I do not have windows in the back of my van. There are times I wish I did, but there are also times I'm really glad I don't have them. So think about it. Think about how you're going to use your van, how often you're going to be trying to stealth, how often you're going to want to have windows open. Think about all those things. And then for resources for finding windows, don't forget to look at the marine sources. You'll find RV windows. They tend to be expensive. Um, you can search for van windows. I have not found a one great site for all these windows. Um, but the marine windows are interesting because they come in all different shapes and sizes that maybe you haven't thought of. And they tend to have white trim, which if you have a white van is very nice. The van windows tend to have a black trim. So think about that. Anyway, Kara, I hope that um, is what you were asking about windows. If anyone else has any other questions about Windows, hit me up and I'll try to answer what I can. Yeah, I might be able to help you out. So this might be a strange time to talk about a place to visit because it's probably closed, but I'm going to talk about it anyway just to plant a seed in your mind. Uh, in an earlier episode, I talked about uh, mining for sunstones up in eastern Oregon. Well, there's an, actually a very famous mine in the United States that you can go to, and it's actually a public park. And it is a diamond mine. In fact, it is the only diamond mine in the U.S. And if you pay close attention to quarters, you know where this is, because this state's quarter has a diamond on it. And that state is Arkansas. That's right. Arkansas has the country's only diamond mine, and people have found some pretty big stones there. So I checked it out a couple of years ago as I was driving back from Texas. I kind of made a diversion and went to Arkansas. There's a, a lot of touristy stuff around the mine, so um, you can spend your day 
mining and then like go out and have a beer at the pub and there's hotels and stuff. So infrastructure is not a problem. And I don't think parking a van there would be a problem either. The way it works is this isn't a mine like a hole in the side of a mountain that you crawl through. It's a big open field. And uh, what happened here was there was a volcano, kind of like the Sunstones, many, many, many years ago. And this volcano brought up a whole bunch of diamonds and just sprayed them around everywhere. And so what looks like a big farmer's field is actually an open mine. And it's many, many, many acres. And every day or every few days, they go out with tractors and kind of churn up the soil. You park in this parking lot. It looks very much like a state park. And then you are welcome to just wander out there and start looking for diamonds. But There are tricks of the trade, as you might expect, and they rent things for you to help out. And the way most people do it is they have a bucket, like a Home Depot bucket. They bring that out there and they sit on it. And then they have a variety of scoops and strainers and sieves and box shakers and all kinds of things to kind of go through the material. It's all very soft. Um, If you have a shovel with you, that would only be to pick material up. You wouldn't actually need to do any active digging. And uh, it's kind of a cool thing. There are little tiny diamonds that you're likely to find, and then sometimes you get lucky and find a really big one. They also have a really cool museum there that talks about the history of the area and many of the stones that were found there. So it's just a kind of a nice day if um, if you want to just go do something different. And heck, if you, if you want to do more diamond mining and you don't have time that day, they will sell you bags of the material and search for diamonds when you get home. I was only there for a brief hour because I had a schedule to keep, so I did not spend that much time mining, but I I did go out there, and they said that the best time to find stuff is after it has just rained, because any diamonds that are on the surface will have the dirt washed off of them, and they'll be much more obvious. I found something that I thought might be a diamond, but it turned out to be just a piece of broken glass. So I was a little disappointed there. But still, it was fun, and it's a nice area. You are outside in Arkansas, so you have to plan for the weather. Probably not a great thing to do in February or in the hotness of July. It's called Crater of Diamonds State Park. And you can find it in Murfreesboro, that's M-U-R-F-R-E-E. S-B-O-R-O, Murfreesboro, Arkansas. It's been there since 1972, although I can tell you that before that it was actually a commercial mine. And then that fell apart, and then they just decided to make it a park. There's stuff to do there, too. If, if you're with a group of people and not everyone's into the mining, they have swimming pools, there's a restaurant. I mean, there's, there's plenty of stuff to do there. And, heck, it's 37 and a half acres you could spend a whole lot of time there and you, you'll probably run across some people who've got the fever and they'll, they'll spend a whole lot of time. Like, you know, you can tell that they've been there for maybe a few years. One warning though, you're not allowed to bring anything with a motor out there. You can't bring motorized shaker tables or augers or anything like that. Everything you do has to be by hand. So that's Crater of Diamond State Park in Murfreesboro, Arkansas. Tales from the road. Okay, this story is a little strange. So I figured times are strange. It's time for a strange story that I've been holding on for a while. This was way back in the 80s, and I was driving back to college. I went to college at Salem College in Salem, West Virginia. I was driving back from Massachusetts with uh, some classmates, and uh, we were driving up 
the very large hill on I-81, I think it's I-81, near Port Jervis, New Jersey, that leads up towards Milford, Pennsylvania. It's just a hill. It's not a big deal. It's part of the interstate, whatever. But my car was a standard shift, and I had been using it to deliver pizzas all spring break. And apparently I had done a bit of damage to the clutch. And as we're going up the hill, the engine's going faster and faster, and the car's going slower and slower until the engine goes as fast as it can, and the car stops. I had burned out the clutch. On a Sunday, (laughs) so this is before cell phones, of course. We flagged down somebody. They got us a tow truck. The tow truck took the car to a shop, and the guy was going to work on it over the weekend, which was great. So we had that going for us. Um, Clutches are not that hard to replace in that car. It was a Datsun 510, by the way. But we had to spend the night. So uh, my dad surprised me and came down and found a hotel for us and stuff. And so we were just kind of waiting around in the hotel and, uh, it was four of us. And even though we went to the same school, we weren't exactly friends. So it was a little awkward. There's two women and two guys and, you know, watching TV and it really wasn't my scene. I, so I figured, I think I'm going to go for a walk. So I had remembered driving in that there was a sign for some sort of a science center and that is my scene. So I thought, well, maybe I'll try to take a walk to the science center. (laughs) Obviously I didn't have a car. So I I did find a sign that said something like Discovery Science Center or something like that. And I was like, ah, I'll just take a walk. It turned out to be one of the strangest walks I've ever had in my life. I left about nine o'clock in the morning and I, you know, I didn't know if they're going to be open. didn't matter. It was Sunday. So I figured what the heck, I'll just go and see. And it was a pleasant windy street through mountains and woods. And, you know, one of the nicer parts of Pennsylvania, not quite in coal country, but similar vibe. And I started noticing just odd things. One thing I noticed was a house that looked very much like the house from American Gothic. And it had recently snowed, and this house had no footprints around it and no apparent driveway. So no one, and I could see that no one had disturbed the snow. Uh, it kind of looked like the house was abandoned. But as I was walking by, I noticed there was a woman watching me out of the windows in the attic. Like, if you can imagine a house with a big peak, this woman was kind of peeking behind the curtains up in the attic. And she didn't move a lot. She just kind of watched me as I was walking along. And I waved, because, hey, I'm friendly. Uh, No wave back. And so I was like, okay, I just kept on walking. Uh, You know, I'm out for my walk. And so I continue my walk, and I go around the corner. And after a while, I'm like, well, you know what? I really need to pee. And I'm in a woodsy part here. There, I'd passed that one house. There really weren't any other houses. And I was like, I got to pee. Uh, I'm a guy. I have the guy prerogative. And I kind of climb up over a hill to get off the road where there's a nice cluster of trees. Find the tree and do the business. And then I look. And on the other side of the hill, there's a hole. Like, like a big cellar hole. Like a really big cellar hole. Like, not from a house, like from something much bigger. And I can see in the hole that there are all these stainless steel structures. Like, it used to be a kitchen. Like, you know, stainless steel tables and maybe a stainless steel freezer that had fallen over and some doors. There was some big building here at one point that was completely gone now. And again... Just like with that house I'd seen earlier, there were no roads. There was no driveway. There was no way to get to this place. I don't have an explanation for you. That's what I saw. I didn't go down and poke around because it didn't look safe. And uh, I didn't know if I was trespassing or anything. 
So I decided I'll just keep on walking. So I keep on walking up the road. I don't know how long I was walking. It felt like, you know, half an hour, maybe an hour. And I came to the science center and I could see it in the distance. It was a huge building. It was really big and it was kind of made out of that kind of bronzy colored wood that was popular for science centers in the 80s. And it looked like an inviting place, but there was a sign that said, no trespassing. I thought, well, it's a science center with no trespassing. That doesn't make sense. So I figured that the no trespassing must have, the sign must have twisted. And it must have meant actually the woods near there. Don't go into the woods, but you can go on the road and the road's fine. So I did. I just kept on walking. I got up to the door and uh, the parking lot was on the side. I couldn't really see it, but the front door was kind of just like on this path. And I went to the front door and I go up and the door's open. So I'm like, cool, it's open. And I go inside and there's the registration desk, but uh, there's nobody there. But there's some aquariums and stuff, you know, little aquariums, kind of like nature center aquariums, not like, you know, giant sharks swimming around aquariums. And I'm looking around, there's your typical tadpoles and frogs and turtles and stuff. It's, it's kind of cool. And they have um, charts up of how the water cycle works and stuff. And I'm walking down the hallway and still haven't found anybody yet, but it was early. So, you know, not too worried about it. And then I get to a room and it's filled with beds, like bunk beds. And, um, that's not something I'm used to seeing at a science center. And then I go down another room and there's like this big dining hall area. And at that point I'm like, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. I don't actually know where I am or what I'm doing. So I'm going to just leave. So I carefully went out the open door. I didn't break into anything totally looked like it was open. The lights were on. There was stuff, you know, the water aquariums were bubbling. You know, it had the sense of life to it, but there were no people. Maybe they're not open. Maybe something's going on. I don't know. I'm out of here. Go down the path and I start going down the driveway and there's a car that's coming up the driveway. And I swear to you, it was the exact same car from the movie, The Evil Dead. Now, that movie came out not too long from when I, this experience actually happened. So seeing such a car wasn't unusual, but it was that car. And it's coming up the driveway towards me very slowly. And I'm kind of jogging out and I'm like, wow, maybe that no trespassing sign really was for me. And maybe I'm really not supposed to be here. And this car's coming towards me and it's the only way out. And so I jog by it and wave. Hi. Hi there. And then I just keep on running by and kind of looking over my head a little bit. I see that the car has its brakes on. Can't see inside the car. It's completely black. And as I keep jogging away, the car speeds up and heads towards the science center that I had just left. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, at that point, I figure I've had enough walk. I take the 45 minutes or so and get back to the hotel room where they're still watching TV. And, uh, I get in and I to tell them about my little adventure. I actually didn't tell them too much about the weird stuff. I, I tell them I saw, I saw a deer cause I did see a deer and I thought they would like that. And then I look at the clock. Now remember I had left at 9 AM clock said 9:30. All that stuff had happened in half an hour. Now, with stories like that, you must think something's wrong. 
and I do too. I am clearly remembering something wrong. I'm remembering the clock wrong. Uh, I'm not remembering the science center wrong. I could be remembering the old lady in the attic somewhat wrong. Definitely didn't remember the basement hole with all that stuff that was there. But I can't see where I where it was wrong. I mean, my memory is exactly what I just told you, and it's that real to me. And yet it can't be. So make of that what you will. I am not claiming that I had an out-of-place time warp experience, but that sure is what it feels like. Thank you very much for listening to this episode 16, the late episode. I do apologize for it being late. Uh, I am busy working with this, this virus stuff, and it's messed up with my time, so thank you. I don't know what I'm going to do next week, but it will be something. Music, again, is by Simon Wagg, a.k.a. Sir Mouge. Please stay safe, and please be patient. This will end. <laughs>